if there was a cost to various forms of pollution. Because, for example, there is a law that doesn't allow them, and there is a methodology that computes them. Then again, the numbers would change. My contention is that by not pricing in ESG, we are all looking at the wrong numbers and we are running the wrong math. That was the voice of Assad Razouk, Group CEO at Syndicatum Renewable Energy and the host of the Angry Clean Energy Guy podcast. We're talking about the need for new market forces to drive sustainability and reduce carbon output. In Assad's view, we've been playing around the perimeter for too long. Now is the time to align corporate, government, and societal interests to ensure a cleaner world and healthier planet. I'm Steve Stein, your host here on Inside Asia. On the environmental and clean tech front, we're off to a fast start in 2021, and according to my guest this episode, there's no time to waste. Structural changes, however, are essential. And this means calling out the biggest contributors to our current climate change crisis. It starts with big oil. They have a lot to account for, says Assad, not just in the way they operate, but in the tactics they've long employed to divert public attention and lay the blame elsewhere. In this 35-minute conversation, we touch on the geopolitics of climate change, fossil fuel charades, the role of investors, and the need to once and for all make companies accountable for the resources they extract and the pollution they create. But first, a quick thanks to our sponsor, Quilt AI, a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy, while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service of people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. I am very much looking forward to this conversation, Assad. It's been a pleasure. It's good to see you again. Thank you, Steve. It's so great to be here. Yeah, we're just jumping right in because I'm not going to waste any time with you. There's a lot to cover in a short period of time. You were last on the podcast in May of 2019. That was almost two years ago. And at that time, um, you kind of schooled me on the world of climate, renewable, and everything else that goes with that. I guess my biggest question for you, angry clean energy guy, are you any more optimistic now than you were before? I am optimistic, Steve, from time to time, but on balance, I'm probably even more angry hmm. on balance. And the reason I'm angry is, is data-based. It's not actually a feeling that's coming out of uh, nowhere. We continue to increase CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. And the data is kind of crystal clear. It's rising, and I cannot see how we're going to stop it just yet, which is why I'm angry, to a level where by 2030, we would have locked in a warming of 2 degrees centigrade. And at that point, when you sit back and watch that film, when you watch that movie, how are you supposed to react? Mm. You've got to be angry. Mm. 
Well, I mean, that clearly is the, the position you've taken on this, and it's you're getting some re- responses out there, me me along with them. I mean, I, I guess the, there's good news and bad news. So um, before we get into the bad news, let's talk about the good news. What, what are your top three positive signs of change? Uh, and do we actually have a crack at limiting global warming of 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels? Is there anything out there that looks hopeful to you at this stage? And then we'll come to the bad stuff. Yeah. Let's first agree that climate change is a global problem that requires top-down systemic solutions. And whether I drop using my plastic straw or I don't isn't going to make a difference. Uh, We could spend an hour discussing plastic straws, but I'll uh, spare you that today. So... Let's just agree that. Now, if you look at, at therefore, climate action from that point of view, there are definitely big signs of positive movement. Mm. The issue is not so much the big signs, and I'll tell you what the top three are in my view. It's the pace. Mm. This is about speed, not intent, right? And speed is actually critical because it's all about speed. In terms of big macro developments, uh, probably the biggest is China committing to go net zero by 2060. Personally, I'm allergic to net zero as an expression. I think it should be banned and it should be replaced by simply zero. I never anyway understood what the net bit is about. (laughs) All things being equal. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely, exactly. So China going net zero by 2060 is actually quite huge. And you would know that it was followed in short order by Japan and South Korea. So that's three major economies getting on with the program. It's not so much, though, about just the Chinese announcement. It's about its implications. Because that means that every single Chinese citizen has to completely change the way they live, the way they drive, the way they eat. And because it's China, the good news is you know it's going to happen. Yeah, top down. Absolutely. It's going to happen. Just today, we learned that China in 2020 smashed all wind power records, installing 52 gigawatts on its own. Now, 52 gigawatts is three times what the United States installed. It's 47 times what India installed. And it's more than Europe, all of Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America combined installed. So that's what the Chinese do. They do things big and they get them done. And, and that's leadership, right? I mean, it's just they're, they're doing things as opposed to talking about them. And, and a lot of people don't recognize that about China. I mean, what, what's mobilizing and motivating them? Is it the idea that it's an imperative or they, it's the technology? They want to be leaders in this field? Or is it just the pollution levels are simply unlivable? Well, that's a parenthesis. I still want to get back to the top three right. positive developments. 
But it's definitely the pollution. Mm. It's self-interest. Okay. There is no better motivator. China had 80,000 environmental riots in one year and routinely clocks about that number. Now, if you are a communist party holding the country together, pollution, therefore, then becomes a legitimacy issue. So you want to solve it because you don't want the headache that comes with not solving it. It's also pragmatic too. I mean, the healthcare implications and the weight on the on the uh, healthcare sector are significant if they don't address this too. So, again, you know, practical approaches to major issues. I'm glad you mentioned healthcare actually, mm-hmm. because coronavirus, if anything, actually put an incredible laser focus on healthcare. Mm-hmm. And yes, countries' balance sheets never take into account the contingent liability from the healthcare implications of burning fossil fuels. And these are massive because we are annually killing about 10 million people, and that's death, and hundreds of millions of people, health is being affected by fossil fuels, and we're paying for it, society is. But it's a contingent liability, it's not there, you don't see it in the books. Right, exactly, exactly. Okay, but so before we forget this, the top three most positive things that have happened in the last two years since we last spoke. As I said, number one is China. Number two is Joe Biden. We cannot get anything done without the United States. So if the United States is going in a different direction, this is a disaster for the entire population of Earth. And as I said, climate change is a top-down problem, or rather the solutions must be top-down, and therefore a purposeful U.S. administration, mission-driven to fight climate change because that's how it improves its own population's health and well-being is critical, right? The The third critical factor, just to close that loop, is the European Union. The European Union has significantly upped its game. By the way, interestingly, in no small part because of a pandemic. Pandemics historically lead to a revival of the credibility of science. Mm. So the 1666 Great Plague you know, led in a winding line, but a line nonetheless, to the Industrial Revolution. Mm. And we are seeing something like this now developing before our eyes. And so China, United States, EU moving quite decisively is the most encouraging development since we've last met. So whether it's science that benefits from this or it's basically just a stop and and reconsider your life and the role that you're playing, it's kind of interesting. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day as long as something changes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But when it changes, if change is based on data and facts yeah. and science, right. we will all benefit exponentially versus it being based on non-data and fake science.
You're angry about a lot of things, and you put a hate on a lot of anti-sustainability culprits, from lawyers to bankers to insurance companies and your podcast. And for anybody who hasn't listened um, to, to your podcast, I'm going to recommend it and put it in the, the show notes, because uh, I think you really right, go to the heart of the matter. But there's no one um, you like to hate more than big oil. Why is that? Well... Agents of change are not just governments. I mean, I think of government of I mean, I think of governments as really the um, principal in a kindergarten policing the children, the children being all the other actors in society. So you obviously have to have a competent principal to have a good school. Now, in the corporate world, Yes, big oil obviously are the, um, uh, the, 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 the biggest culprits and the biggest problem. And we, they have to shrink. There is no other way. And the reason for that is you've got an industry which researched climate change in the 1970s, mm. concluded that it was a clear and present danger, in the early 1980s, then went and buried the evidence while it had actually a choice to still make a lot of money by helping the world to transition to a safer place. And when, so that was 1983 and um, Exxon. When you flash forward to today, 40 years later, right? Mm. And they are still effectively muddying the waters, still trying to produce more oil and gas, and still, in effect, trying to stop the rest of the world, mm. or the world, rather, moving to cleaner lifestyles. You have to place them at the top of the list of companies that are being hypocritical in the extreme and are destructive almost by DNA. Mm, mm. Deceptive as well, yeah? Absolutely. Mm. So the individuals who work in that industry, I'm sure are all very nice people. Mm. But there is something about the collective, about the incentive system, about the training that then leads you to continue to basically just want to extract oil and gas and coal, irrespective of the cost to society, presumably because you get very well paid and you get a bonus at the end of the year. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm about halfway through Michael Mann's The New Climate War. Uh, he's the guy who presented the hockey stick visual that shows the degree to which humans have contributed to climate change. Uh, and he was subsequently targeted by well-orchestrated groups of climate deniers. Um, and uh, he says that the only thing we should fear more than big oil's product output is the, the lobbying and deception tactics uh, to recast the climate change narrative. I is that fair? Michael Mann is correct, and I've made that point, I think, on almost every single episode of my podcast. Mm -hmm. And the central point is that you have a very sophisticated player 
that's trying to shift responsibility in order to avoid it and bury it. And so therefore, if you want to shift responsibility, the easiest way is to develop sophisticated techniques for people to feel that they are the problem. In other words, I am the problem because I drive this petrol car. I am the problem because I use a plastic bag, etc. When in reality, actually, I am not given a choice to do anything else. There isn't one out there. And the plastic industry is probably the perfect case study because OPEC and the International Energy Agency and other enablers of the oil and gas industry know that oil and gas demand is going to is going down as we switch to electric vehicles for example however if you read the literature they've basically bet that they can make up the difference by producing more plastic mm. therefore they are building hundreds of billions of dollars of new petrochemical plants with that aim in mind so what do you do then to justify the use of plastic you blame the consumer the crazy thing though is that we even today are playing culture wars around this issue. So, for example, you've got people who flight flight shame others. That's a byproduct, by the way, of exactly the same problem. This is the idea of don't get on a plane, you're leaving a big carbon footprint. Correct. Mm. That's one example. Another example is you've got vegans or vegetarians lecturing meat eaters. Mm. That's another culture war. Right. Uh, the th- you know the third one is the fashion industry. Uh, you know you've got another f- culture war there. So what has happened is that instead of and contrast that with the clean energy industry for a second, when you solar panels are 100% recyclable and there are laws that say that you are, and so the recyclability is built into the price. Mm-hmm. Plastic, <clears throat> however is cheap for only one reason. You have not built into its price its environmental damage. And that suits who? The producer making money out of a waste product from oil and gas, which is then going into so many activities that we've become completely addicted to it. And if you solve the price issue, if you price the environmental externalities, I can guarantee you that plastic use would start declining super fast. Instead, what we have is we have plastic use up 23 times per each individual worldwide since 1973, and an industry betting on that increasing even more. So you you can see the problem. Mm. Capitalizing the profits and socializing the costs is part of that overwhelming kind of strategic approach to this product. Yeah. Well, I think we wandered into the bad news pretty quickly there because here we are, we're we're sitting in it now. So here's here's a situation. How can you contrast then to some of the declarations that come out in recent months from groups like Shell, Total, BP, and others who make commitments to achieve net zero carbon or zero carbon, as as you would say, uh, by 2050? Is, Is this real stuff? Is this sincere? Or is it just basically pandering uh, to to uh, investors and others making commitments that they have no intention of keeping? 
Well, you don't even have to think about it, to be honest, because it's meaningless. It actually doesn't mean anything for anyone to say that they're net zero by some distant date in the future, A. And then B, even if they meant something, it's still meaningless unless you know exactly what they're doing. And these two conditions are never met. And so this is a kind of a, uh, it's a shareholder, stakeholder management approach, which takes very old techniques and reuses them. But we let them. Mm. That's the fundamental problem. We society, we governments, we regulators, we the law, we the church, we, you know, all the we universities, we let them. Mm. But even that's starting to change a bit, isn't it, Assad? I mean, I look at, you know, Blackstone as the world's largest asset manager. I mean, was it $9 trillion under management? And, and they're making uh, statements to say we are going to begin to divide, divest from uh, fossil fuels. We do expect some changes. That's got to put some pressure on these companies at some level, yeah? There's no question that pressure from a tightening which I can see, actually, of environmental, social, and governance rules, mm-hmm. is there. There's no question that it will increase. My issue is not so much with what um, they're doing, the, the Black Rocks of the world. My issue is, again, speed. Hence, back to the anger issue. The, the problem is, okay, that's all fine. All these people are doing kind of the right thing. And I'm not talking about oil and gas companies, but many corporates or trying to, or at least some individuals want to try and do the right thing. But the capital markets punish you for that, mm-hmm. by and large. The atmospheric concentrations of CO2 are still increasing. Mm-hmm. And if we don't actually move at a multiple uh, speed of what we're doing now, we're going to just hit a big white wall very soon in 2030, which, by the way, it's only eight and a half years from now now. Um, And then after that, it's going to be rear guard action. Because obviously climate change is one of these problems where even if we lock in warming of four degrees and it's a complete disaster, we still have to fight it because every day, Every little degree matters. Um, And so that's fine. But as long as people realize that unless we pick up very significantly and at scale on what we're doing, in particular China, the EU and the United States, we're just not going to get there. So even institutional investors need tighter regulations, more top-down push because the system right now doesn't actually allow them to move at speed. Yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting. I mean, your message to me, just listening to your podcast, listening to you over the years, um, is that, you know, go for the low-hanging fruit here. One of my favorite uh, uh, stats that you throw out is 90 companies account for two-thirds of man-made CO2 emissions since the industrialization, uh, or since industrialization. I mean, that's, that's a pretty focused group. And if you just get governments and consumers and stakeholders focused on those 90, there is a chance to put 
push them. And because of all these other pressures brought to bear, the, you know, the rising interest and in, 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 in support of ESG, um, there does feel to possibly be a chance. Now, obviously, many of those 90 are the oil and gas that we're talking about. There's a fundamental problem with that because they're very product is, is you know, carbon emitting. Um, so it's not all that easy. It's not like you tackle all 90 in one go. But but why, why don't we do that? And why aren't governments focused on the type of policies that are going to not punish, but also provide some incentives, on the other hand, if they do turn the corner and make certain changes? We are going to stop using fossil fuels, yeah. at least 90% of them. So, but the issue is when. And we know what to do. You're absolutely correct. We know what to do. Basically, what we need to do is about triple or quadruple the current global rhythm at which we're adding solar, wind, and storage. And we need to stop deforestation. Not so much plant trees. We've got to stop deforestation, right? If we just did these two things, yes, we would have a chance. There is no technological barrier for us doing that, right? There are other barriers which are soft. I mean, for example, the rear guard, the rear guard action that we've just um, discussed. Mm-hmm. But the answer to your, to your comment, to your point, to your question is, is very simple, in fact. We, we absolutely know what to do. We've got to pick up the pace. That's what we have to do. Yeah. And we know how to do that. Mm-hmm. But if the capital markets, for example, aren't told to start punishing, in some ways, Mm. people that are slowing us down, the speed isn't going to pick up. I mean, as as a tiny example. Yet, yet back to your earlier three positive points, you know, China, U.S., EU, um, as making significant changes now, I mean, a little bit late, but nevertheless coming. And then you add to that the idea that there is rising and greater awareness around the importance of addressing climate change. Um, And then you see, you know, and I'll add on to this, the whole movement in corporate purpose, many companies getting on the bandwagon, you know, deciding to make decisions, not just around climate, but around employees and everything else, you you are in a situation now that I certainly didn't see even 12 months ago, um, where um, there is hope. I feel hope. Now, am I just, you know, drinking Kool-Aid, or is there something going on here where I can and should feel hopeful? Or do you know something I don't? Because I'm not saying that solves the problem, um, but it does feel like there are at least more uh, energies aligned towards positive results than negative right now. I don't disagree with anything that you've said, and I think you're absolutely correct. I would just maybe make two observations. Even if you are absolutely correct, you still have to up the pace three three to four times. Mm. So there's actually quite a bit to do. And the second is on corporate purpose, we've got to change the way people get paid in these companies Mm. and against which metrics in order to actually make it happen. And I'll give you as a case study, the ouster just a few days ago of the chief executive of Danone in France, the makers of Evian, the bottled water, on corporate purpose grounds. He was basically trying to do too much compared to Nestle and Unilever, which affected 
profitability. Next thing you know, he was out. Even though he was, from a corporate purpose perspective, way ahead of Unilever and certainly miles ahead of Nestle. It works against what you're saying, which is unless until we award companies uh, at the top who are making the most stringent changes, we're not going to be able to meet the timeframes that you're speaking about. Correct. Mm. And the issue here is earnings. If your earnings are not hit by the water pollution that you're causing, then your earnings do not reflect price ESG. Mm-hmm. And then Nestle is going to be preferred to Danone. Yeah. You see what I mean? I However, today, the capital markets, the accountants, the insurance companies, and the regulators don't actually have anything to ascribe a price on your water pollution. And so it doesn't exist. And so you look more profitable while destroying more. Right. So, so there needs to be um, two things, uh, a, a value placed on these resources that you're extracting from the earth, and therefore that needs to feed into the model, the cost of production, in such a way where you re- revalue the overall asset value of that organization in such a way that then shareholders can adjust accordingly. Would that be right? Think about it the way you think about a cost of carbon. We must have a cost of carbon because if we did a lot of the fundamental conclusions of the stock market would change. So that's a very clear metric. It's a market-based mechanism, right? Or a carbon tax, whatever form it takes, but it does affect that change. Mm. Similarly, if there was a cost to various forms of pollution, because for example, there is a law that doesn't allow them, and there is a methodology that computes them. Mm. Mm. Then again, the numbers would change. My contention is that by not pricing in ESG, we are all looking at the wrong numbers and we are running the wrong math. Yeah, great point. What are the prospects of that happening? And if it does happen, in which markets? It's got to start by the regulators, it really has to start with the regulators, you know, people like the US SEC or uh, various European regulators or their peers. And it has to be amplified by principally the insurance industry and the accounting industry, while the corporate law environment around fiduciary duty needs to be maybe needs to become clearer. And I'll give you an example. Take palm oil. You've got a, you know, we cannot do without palm oil. Okay? And there's no point boycotting it, right? Because it's an incredibly productive crop and it's useful to humanity as a whole. However, we absolutely cannot destroy pristine rainforest to produce palm oil. So there are sustainability standards out there that are kind of pretend sustainability about palm oil. Mm. However, let's take my four, my, my diamond into account very quickly. If there was a, an insurance company 
that said that it doesn't insure against the risk that your palm oil, Mr. Big Corporation, is not sustainable. It's specifically excluded from your DNO policy. And if there was a legal framework whereby it's your fiduciary duty as an individual, as a director of a board, to have sustainable palm oil, and therefore if you don't, yeah. it's your personal liability and the insurance company that I just referred to isn't right. isn't insuring you. And if the accountants flagged it in the accounts and the regulators had a clear thing that says no sustainable palm oil, yeah. then bingo, it will just happen. So, so this, this is a bigger, broader ecosystem of regulators, insurance brokers, lawyers, um, lawmakers who all need to be on the same side of the table looking and staring down that big oil or the big corporate organization to say, we're watching. And, and our, org, our, our legislation is all lining up against the type of incentives or disincentives required in order to drive those changes. It's not going to be left up to the goodwill of every individual organization to do what they think is best. Is that right? Yes, but that's at the core of capitalism. Capitalism is supposed to be humane. It's supposed to be fair. It's supposed to be transparent. It is absolutely not supposed to be what we're doing now. It's neither humane, nor fair, nor transparent. And the solution, therefore, you can see, Steve, has to be top-down. It's these major poles of what keeps the system together, governments, regulators, insurance companies, accountants, rating agencies, that all need to significantly up their game, and they need to do it very quickly. On a positive note, a lot can change. These are very powerful levers. A lot can change if you move them. And there is a lot we can do in the next two to three years to deliver that step move in decarbonization that we need. So we just have to be focused on the job and people like you and me have to continue shouting from the roof. Yeah. And, and again, just to come full circle on this, compared to two years ago, Given where we are now, given the type of changes that are taking place, is it enough or is it not enough? Are we going to be able to combat this or is it simply a bridge too far at this point in terms of reining in all these forces and all these organizations and associations and government entities to get the changes to happen in the timeframes you're speaking of? If you're a betting man, which I believe you are, what would you say? I am on balance optimistic provided we stay angry and focused. Yeah. And if, if nothing else, I hope the world gets their act together because I'd like to see somebody in you just a little less angry. That's very kind, Steve. Yeah. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. That was my conversation with Assad Razouk, Group CEO of Syndicatum Renewable Energy and host of the Angry Clean Energy Guy podcast. Follow Assad on LinkedIn where you'll find him posting on some of the damning evidence that makes him so angry. Convert that anger to action and we might just have a chance. What does action look like? Well, for the answers, I suggest you pick up a copy of Michael Mann's The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Mann is a climatologist and geophysicist and author of dozens of books, articles, and academic papers. He's also one of a handful of climate change watchers who 20 years ago pointed to the data that showed humans were categorically responsible for global warming.
By getting out in front of the topic, he also became a prime target for right-wing climate deniers and those vested in safeguarding the future of fossil fuels. What I expected in reading the book was a scientific assessment of the damage we've done to our environment. What I got instead was a deep and dark portrayal of the tactics employed by big oil. Mann decries the industry's arsenal of, and I quote, disinformation, deceit, divisiveness, deflection, delay, despair-mongering, and doomism. No love lost there. The real war, it seems, is a war of communications. With so many traditional and social media channels competing for our attention, all it takes is some crafty manipulation of the narrative and a fistful of algorithms and consumers of media are left not knowing what to think. These days, you don't need to present the facts or even win an argument, you merely need to introduce a whiff of doubt. It's enough to derail any concerted line of thinking, whether we're talking about a political candidate, a pandemic, or a pending environmental catastrophe. I don't know about you, but I don't like it. When it comes to climate change, holding accountable these perpetrators of mistruths may be as, if not more important than shunning the oil industry's polluting habits. If getting angry is what it takes, then maybe all of us should aim our displeasure at those that claim to have our best interests at heart, but don't. So take it from Assad, the angry clean energy guy, and turn your anger into action. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia. Please share our program with friends and colleagues. We're entering our third season with over 170 episodes produced and available to you free of charge. Each week, we plan to introduce a new topic or trend that shows how innovation and corporate purpose can align and profitably. Prefer reading to listening? Then subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. Visit us at www.insideasiaadvisors.com. Leave your name and the email address and start receiving weekly updates that highlight key points from the discussion, provide links to additional insights and articles, and reference earlier podcasts on related subjects. Want to start a discussion? Leave us a message on any of our LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram pages. As always, we thank you for listening. Thank you.